Sinclair Wants to Help is a fictional podcast that uses controversial and personal viewpoints to tell bizarre stories. Listener discretion is advised. You know, nothing beats a good detective story. There are detective stories in every genre, every medium, every country, every universe. There are detectives who are bakers, detectives who are children, detectives who are criminals, which seems a little counterintuitive, but what the hell? That's just how much everyone loves the idea of being a detective. They'll throw away all their ethics and tiptoe past every conflict of interest, as long as they can put on a trench coat and gruffly narrate their most asinine observations. It's a human foible that even gods aren't immune to, and I've certainly worn a deer stalker and rambled about the gray cells on more than a few occasions in my time. <laughs> Let's take things back to the most honest city in the United States, Las Vegas, Nevada. You'll remember that I had some entertainment dealings there through the uh, Pendry Execution shows, and even though those had a pretty short stint in town, I kept all sorts of business open in Vegas since then. And there's no place in the world with a more profitable market for the unusual investor than Las Vegas. It would be unwise of me to broadcast most of the businesses I'm involved with, as I believe most of my permits are, let's say, up for renewal. But rest assured, if you're ever in town and need something, anything, I might be able to help. The sad thing is that even my legitimate businesses have to be discussed more covertly nowadays. One of my biggest profits in that town has taken a complete drubbing because of trademark issues. So thanks for that, Mr. Shack. I spelled that A-C-K, so you can't sue me. But to prevent legal troubles for this story, I won't be able to reveal completely what this business is, even though there's nothing dubious or unethical about it. So, to be as direct as I can, I have a very large collection of performers under contract who are booked for events as impersonators of the king. Uh-huh. I know that between the cultural appropriation and the god-awful movies and the creepy stuff, the king's legacy has been a little muddied. I also know that at the very core of most people, they don't care because he's the king and you love to sing along, and his stage presence was enchanting. So why wouldn't there be a legion of worshippers who wanted to imitate his glory? After all, the emperors of Rome called themselves Caesars, so the chameleonic naming of royalty isn't new. It only makes sense that the king would have some heirs. And more than anyone, I was in the best place to supply these agents of rock and roll for all the birthdays, weddings, bar mitzvahs, and last rites happening in Nevada's humble home of human hedonism. I knew the king after all. I introduced him to the sandwich that killed him. So. I have more than a little bit of insight into how to get performers who can properly embrace his soul. And I don't mean that figuratively. In addition to my knowledge of his highness, 
I have an end to make sure that I'm able to get my staff direct lessons from the king. I had been able to do my friend Cocapelli a favor by swiping the king's soul from the Abrahamic Corporation right at the last minute, and in return he loans me the king's soul once a month so I can run impersonation classes. We have him study and critique their technique, but mostly we just let the soul fumes seep and get everyone high, and that usually does the trick. Oh, he complains about it, but usually we rub bacon on his jar and he calms down. I opened the business in 1984, and I've always tried to be pretty involved with every semester, but, you know, with all the work I've got to do, I had to put someone else in charge, and the first person I had to do that was this guy named Cyril Donahue. He worked and owned a small music store with records and old toys and stuff, focused mostly on 50s music. He was a dorky guy, and he didn't even really like the kink. He was a snob. But with all the knowledge he had, he was the best person I could find for the position. Also, the rent on the place was generally negligible. The best years for the business were in the 90s, and, you know, Cyril had taught me that there's this funny thing about nostalgia where people get interested in stuff from one decade after about 20 to 25 years have passed by. In the 90s, that was the 70s, and there was plenty of nostalgia for disco, space opera, and, of course, the 50s. See, part of that 20-year nostalgia rule is that people's memories of those decades shape the pop culture of the current one. And that was a phenomenon that the king had been more than willing to exploit right up until he died. But for the people in the 90s who were remembering the 70s, remembering the 50s, the need for the king was a problem, as there was no one to take his throne. Now these pretenders may not have been suited to sit, but they could certainly dance around the thing. The 90s needed impersonators of the king to fill a desperate void. They were a noble, beloved people. And this is what made the checkmate killings such a heinous act. It was the July of 1996, a hot time for the Sin City both metaphorically and meteorologically. The air was as dry as the gamblers and the barflies were soaked. And there were thousands of people from across the world who, failing as gamblers, would try their luck as barflies. Others were being led by impulse and bright decor to see extravagant shows or even make extraordinary decisions. Some of these decisions were finalized in a little chapel called A Little Less Nuptiation. What this gazebo lacked in size, it made up for in presentation, with four cushioned benches covered in golden glitter and white lace tightly packed in by walls that held plasticine musical notes that shifted between shades of bright colors. The sound of copyright-free rockabilly barely drowned out the rumble of an air conditioner in disrepair, and the sweating red faces of the bride and groom standing on the altar showed how in vain the machine's efforts were. The bride's legs were shaking in their steep heels about as rapidly as her groom's brow quivered. Evidently, the couple had been standing there for longer than they found acceptable, and as the determined smile of the bride finally fell from her face, the coat came from off the groom and he marched towards the back of the small building. The whole point of doing this was because it was supposed to be quick. The man complained as he strode towards a hot pink door covered in gold glitter and carrying a silver plaque with the name Father Lee Preselby 
engraved with gold text. Father Lee was not known for being late to his sermons or his ceremonies. The good father offered the fastest and flashiest wedding experience in the continental United States, all at a bargain of $99, $129 if you wanted him to sink. But as this aggravated groom knocked on the father's door, there wasn't so much as a sneeze, let alone a song, left to indicate that Father Lee was on the premises. Alright, old man, I'm coming in there, and you better be ready with a refund or the chorus of burning love. The groom shoved his shoulder against the door, and finding it was made of metal, rubbed his arm in pain. He then jiggled the door handle and found it to be unlocked. The groom entered the room and discovered what could have almost been a religious shrine to the king, but no priest for which to bestow blessings upon it. Another door was wide open inside this room, however, exposing white and beige walls that were reflecting a sterile overhead light. You're on the can? Come on, man! We were supposed to be done with this 20 minutes ago! What the hell? What the hell?! As the groom stepped toward Father Lee's bathroom, he found the priest lifelessly propped upon his toilet, with a shard of metal in his chest, and blood sprayed across the purple shag carpet with a splash of blood across the mirror spelling, It should have been you. The police arrived on the scene within a half hour, but I had been there in five minutes. Unfortunately, this hadn't been the first of the kings to die in the city. The father's death meant I lost 14 of my king impersonators. That's nearly an entire year's class! I had lost some of my more interesting acts in the process, too, like... Like Chef E. Parsley, who was in charge of a family restaurant. Alberto, the, f- the Esperanto-speaking king. And Almvis, the most talented tree I've ever met. All of them had been dying similarly, sitting on their throne with a shard of jagged metal stuffed into their chest, and the same words brushed across the mirror wall. Needless to say, this was hurting my bottom line, and I felt a keen interest in sorting the problem out. Not only was I losing far too many of my investments, but Cyril had also been turning into a panicky wreck. Right before I left to visit the departed, I was with Cyril while he was nervously wringing his very dry hands and shivering to the rhythm of a worn vinyl of Chantilly lace, and begging me to get him uninvolved. Come on, Sinclair. Just let me out of this for just a little while. I I don't want to end up like Elmvis. Did you see what they did to his branches? Right where his kids could find him, too. Cyril, you don't get to die until I say so. The killer is only going after impersonators of the king. And last time I checked, all you do is help teach their classes. So calm down. As long as you're working for me, you'll be safe. Didn't all our impersonators work for you? They're more like a subsidiary. Look, what if we just closed down operations for a while? Told everyone to put away their wigs and rhinestone jackets just for a bit until we get it all sorted out. And who's going to populate Vegas' workforce while there are no kings? Are people going to have their impulsive weddings officiated by Buddy Holly? Well, shut up. No, they won't. Between the loss of income and having to coddle a neurotic music nerd, I already had enough problems with losing payment on gigs that didn't happen because of the killings, so it was like a tornado of headaches. 
a few weeks before this, I had already been dealing with a buffet of ethics complaints and legal documents not worth using as napkins, because believe it or not, celebrity impersonations are something that some people take seriously, especially for someone like the King. There are a lot of people who think there's only a certain way that pop culture icons can be represented, and any time you present something that's even slightly off the beaten path, somebody loses their mind. I've had the Arthur Conan Doyle Society on me for stories I've told about Sherlock Holmes more times than I can count. And he's in the public domain. And fictional. Mostly. Several organizations like that had dedicated themselves to representing a clean and acceptable image of the king. The most annoying of these, of course, was the largest. The Grandchildren of Grace. The Grandchildren of Grace were dedicated to making sure that the King's most prominent visual was his work as a gospel singer. Never mind that the King spent most of his life partying and enjoying promiscuous company and sang many, 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 many songs about partying and the enjoyment of promiscuous company, his only legacy should be what he pulled out as a showstopper. I call them goggies to amuse myself. Makes them sound like little gremlins who ruin airplanes. I've got to give it to the Abrahamic Corporation. They've got a really good PR team. And the way they hound me, you'd think they knew about me taking the King's soul from under their nose. They don't. Probably shouldn't be broadcasting that, but... Hmm. I'm sure they won't listen. But from almost all of my tribute acts to the King, they had organized some protest and letter-writing campaign that made it hard for people to even get to the seats. They hated my French-speaking king, in Le Chateau. They hated my dancing dog king, always on my hinds. They even hated my masochist, self-flagellating king, if I can scream. Believe it or not, of those three acts, that last one was the only one that was acceptable for all ages. Oh, and uh, each of the performers I just listed, they were murdered. Suspicious, that. With that same message, it should have been you. Maybe they were trying to say this impersonator should have died instead of the king. Kind of a moot point decades on, but... I never discount the possibility of silly behavior. With all this going on, investigating these deaths myself eventually seemed like the most productive option. My bribes to ensure top-level police work hadn't accelerated the investigation how I'd hoped, so I really had to rely on the personal touch. I looked around the scene, but new observations and clues weren't my goals. What I came for was to pick up a piece of the puzzle I hadn't had a chance to see yet. And that was the weapon. With a bit of careful extraction, I was able to pull the jagged shard out without making the mess too much worse. Although I did get a, quite a bit of the father's blood over me in the process. It tasted like a typo, but I'm not really an expert on those things. And unfortunately, I'm not an expert on shrapnel either, but that's definitely what this shard was. Long, torn-up strips of steel had been fashioned into murder weapons several times over. So this meant whoever the murderer was had resources. Or specific resources, anyways. They had plenty of scrap metal. That was a lead I could hopefully follow up more quickly than tracking what the shrapnel actually was. But in that regard, I had some favors I could call on for help. When I returned to the studio, I washed his cereal, packed away memorabilia and merchandise related to the king hiding it out of view. As he closed the closet and turned around, I was already placing the objects back to their rightful positions. 
I told you, you won't die until I say so, Cyril. Are you trying to make that happen faster? There's no point in hiding this stuff away. Ex except to protect myself? I can die, Sinclair. I'm not whatever the hell you are. I can't gamble on my life like that. You live in the wrong city to have that philosophy. Hang the posters back up. I handed him a stack of advertising posters, which displayed a tall woman wearing a black buffant wig and a bright red vinyl jacket covered in rhinestones. Her lip was curled up as she stared at the photographer with her giant, full-frame sunglasses. We can't let people forget about our biggest star. The woman who so gracefully adorned this poster was the king of the kings. Or rather, she was the queen of kings. Oh, old queenie. I should have cut you a better deal. She was the most high-spirited, powerful, and inspiring impersonator I had ever met. Even the king's soul would grow a bright, impassioned orange when he heard her sing. She was the favorite student of any of us. Even Cyril, who had never shut up about how overrated the king was, knew his role and shut his mouth when the queen took the stage. The king's music would flow through her and it would take the world right back to 1957 as if these songs were being gifted to the world for the first time. I admit that I have a weakness for gimmicks, but nothing is better than finding someone who just does something better than anyone else. And she was the absolute best. I didn't pay her like it though. She had been one of our earlier signings back when no one could have known what a massive deal impersonations like this would have been. I had made more and more money and signed up more people with bigger and bigger paychecks, but Queenie, well, I figured she'd just work hard and be loyal. That's what she always did. With every new performer we sent out, however, Queenie was still the most popular, the most in demand, and the one who had to deal with the most problems. It's hard to be a woman in show business, and, difficult, and I can imagine it's more difficult when you're bizarre pseudo-show business is even more male-dominated than the real thing. People would say awful things to her and insist that she should be flattered by them. You got better boobs than the king did in the 70s. Others would say awful things about her, like, you've got a saggier ass than the king did in the 70s. I tell, okay, I tell a lie, those were usually the same people. The same very drunk people who would say these very lazily insulting things almost within the same breath after Queenie completely blew them off. But keep in mind, there were a lot of tourists too, and and they could often be no less merciful when they've been on the drink. And damn it, it's not fun to hear a bunch of drunk idiots say the same unpleasant things in a theme park rise variety of languages. Parecias on puno de casa. Ye mog Gratias tibi, fili mi. Prodono asini, tua ton titos. And of course, the Goggies couldn't stand her. Not to air her personal life around or anything, but Queenie happened to be a woman who exclusively enjoyed the company of other women. And honestly, that only made her feel more like a perfect modern channel for the king. Of course, we didn't make any sort of deal out of it at the time. This was years before Taylor Swift freed the gays. But those goggies, dear me, did they find even the slightest flirtation with the idea to be offensive. And a woman looking that good dressed up like the king? Oh, they took that offense very personally. 
these people would annoy the queen more than they'd bother any of my other performers, inundating her with angry letters about how she should adjust her behavior and coming to shows just to heckle and harass her. I remember at one show, some jolly joker ran up on the stage with a flintlock pistol and shouted, Sink Sampler Tyrannus! Luckily, one area where Queenie completely outshined the king was in her karate. After that, Queenie had had enough. She found me on one of the audition days and laid things out. Either she got more money, or she quit to do something else. Now, normally, I can work these situations out smooth. I can lay on the purple pros and make my client feel like they're going to get whatever they want and more. Just when I say, and not immediately. It's a psychological thing. You pick them up so high that they don't notice when you gently put them back down. Queenie had seen me play that game a few too many times before, though, and had no patience left. And for months, Cyril and I were without our greatest draw. I tried to be optimistic and had faith that our other staff could pick up the slack, but then the killing started, and the slack started getting real loose. So I gave Queenie what she wanted, and I was even able to make a big deal out of it, because with her back, now I could put on the Queen of Kings Comeback Spectacular. There was a part of me that hoped that, with the Queen of Kings being paid more, that might stop the checkmate killings. I didn't believe that Queenie did it, but I was sure she was capable of it. She's one of my best students, after all. I was honestly relieved when Father Lee died, it meant I could probably rule her out as being one of the suspects. That and it was hard to tie the messages to her. What would you be trying to say? It should have been you. It should have been you who got underpaid? Seems like a weird negotiation tactic. All the better that she probably didn't do it though, because I would have hated to have had to get even with her. I might not have given her her proper due, but anyone who gets in the way of business, well, I have a reputation I have to keep up with my colleagues. The other interesting thing though, about Father Lee dying, was that the guys didn't really bother him that much. Sure, they've never been crazy about the themed weddings, but as long as you play things straight, they tend not to raise much noise. And I mean that with the performances and the marriages. I could certainly see someone in the Goggies wanting to kill Father Lee, but killing so many of the performers had to mean it was an organized thing, or someone had an easy way to get in. And then the weapon that was used, it was sharp, but it wasn't like a strip of metal was made for killing. It was shrapnel, debris, and it hadn't just been through damage, it had been through years. Because there was rust all over this thing. And I imagine it was shared amongst all of them. With the shards and the messages, clearly, this killer had some kind of personal ritual in this process. Maybe I just needed to know where the metal came from. We shouldn't put these up! Cyril whined, interrupting my deductive interlude. Drawing attention to the show is just going to get Queenie killed! Cyril, these posters are already hanging all over town. And drawing attention to this show is going to make us money. Which we haven't been making too much of from this business since Queenie left. What would you be doing without our business here with the kink? Would you be selling old records and your memorabilia? Well... Have fun waiting 15 years for the vinyl revival, and I had to guess opening an eBay store yesterday. 
As for me, I have weapons to supply to vampires in Northern Ireland, souls of South American revolutionaries to barter for, and posthumous cameos of Sir Lawrence Olivier to arrange. And those are gambles that take high stakes. So if you only want to make a little bit of money and go on barely surviving, go ahead. Meanwhile, I'm going to keep living like a god. Cyril dropped his head slightly at my response. I drew a few calming breaths and cooled myself down. I'm sorry, Cyril. You're stressed by all this drama as much as I am. And you don't even have the advantages of my position. It's hard not being omnipresent. So, let me straighten things out for you. I let the cigarette in Cyril's mouth, which he promptly spat out because he doesn't smoke. Please, don't put things in my mouth. You see, Cyril, this show, besides being the best, most exciting tribute act event to the king that your humble soul tradesman has ever had the honor of producing, it is also part of a cunning plan. I pipe this concert up not just so we make a bunch of money. I want to draw the killer out. Somebody is doing this with a grudge. And whether it's the Goggies, or some psycho, or the Royal Order of Drunken Hecklers, I don't think any of them would be able to resist the temptation of killing their biggest target right before the biggest moment of her career. So I've set up a trap, and that should keep her completely safe during the whole event. If anybody tries anything, I'll be able to stop them dead in their tracks. Is that another metaphor? When have I ever used metaphors? The next night had come sooner than Cyril had wanted. He was a nervous wreck that was all shook up, and getting even shakier as we came closer to the curtain opening. Keep that up and we use you to mix a drink. Cyril hunched defensively over his merchandise stand. Could you tell me how to get through the security measures at least? If I could see Queenie safe, it could ease my nerves. Don't worry about her. She's completely taken care of. You just focus on selling merchandise. What are you selling anyways? Are you just trying to hawk your crap? The table was full of outdated calendars, black and white photos, and memorabilia made of cheap material with yellow stains of age, all adorned with the faces of the well-dressed chess nerds who had made up the king's competition, the musicians whose Cyril was always going on about. It's not crap, Sinclair. It's vintage merchandise from the king's contemporaries. If I'm gonna put my life at risk, it's going to be in honor of the musicians whose legacies we should be keeping alive. Singer-songwriters whose talent drove their music, not their manufactured personality. These were the true kings of rock and roll. Huh, gee. Noticed you don't have any Bo Diddley merchandise. Or Little Richard. Or Chuck Berry, for that matter. Hmm. Wonder why that might be. As I continued to look at the table, I saw a rectangular piece of rusty metal encased in a firm glass container, attached to the exorbitant price tag of $15,000. Cyril, there are about 75 years until scrap metal is worth that much. Why does that pressed penny cost so much? It's not a pressed penny. 
This is a piece of wreckage from the 59 plane crash that took away the true talents of early rock, including the greatest of them all. He who will not fade away. In 1959, rock and roll stars Richie Valens, JP, the big bopper Richardson, and Buddy Holly embarked on a plane ride where they were doomed to die from the results of a terrifying crash caused by unsuitable conditions for flight. The moment has been immortalized as one of the most haunting tragedies in popular music, where three great talents were taken away before their time, losing their lives because of their dedication to their work. For many, the loss of Holly was a particular blow. He was an icon amongst early rock and roll stars in his own right. Perhaps not comparable to the king in sheer popularity, but loved with the same passion by many people. Though Buddy Holly did not have the king's showmanship, his everyman image and songwriting talent earned him a reverence that is maintained to this day. Oh, you mean like that song about the pie? And it's a little morbid, but I can't say it crosses any of my moral boundaries. Kinda shocked you'd sell the thing, to be honest. I figured that that'd be like your most prized possession. Personally, I couldn't wait to get off and away from that plane. Which is why I guess I did. Well, you were saying, that's the point of this town. I'd hate to part with it, but... If someone wants it, I might as well get something out of it. High risk, high reward. I suppose this is how I gamble. Cyril's voice drifted off, and he seemed keen to change the subject. So, uh, did you find the killer? Oh, I have my suspects, but I'm not focusing on just one killer. This is for all the marbles. I want to draw out every enemy of the Queen. Now that could be everyone in the audience. Luckily, I've got some advanced technology on my side. I held up a tin circle about the size of a home fire alarm, which had craft wobbly eyes attached to it. Has your engineer graduated kindergarten? I'll explain it in a little bit. The show's starting. But I think you'll find that a kindergartner could only imagine something this brilliant. The whole building went quiet as the lights turned out. Two stage lights struck up to reveal a sharp silhouette. Sparkles of shining stone reflecting from the broad image of a long cape. <sighs> Music beginning as the figure tapped one foot in rhythm with the approaching tune. The lights flashed again like lightning as the music rose in volume and force. As the light came on to stay, the Queen of Kings let out her mighty wail, with red spotlights behind her spelling the word QUEEN in giant letters. Then, the show really began. The first of the aggressors stood up. He was an old man with a steep forehead and bald head covered by a large red hat, and as he stood, he reached into his large red robe and pulled out a packed submachine gun. Before his finger had clutched down on the trigger, one of the plastic circles pulled towards him as though it were a magnet and clasped onto him. He then burst into the air and exploded in colorful flashes of sparks as though he were a firecracker. Cyril watched with his jaw hanging to the floor. These little devices are like smart bombs, but better. With the eyes, they can see everyone in the crowd. If they see anyone who looks like a problem, they'll fly over and... Yeah, just like that. More explosions went off, one after another. 
wowing the crowd as the Queen of Kings carried the show on, their spirited performance keeping the audience wild, the sound of their applause never dying down, even as their numbers depleted into their proper firecracker forms. They're like landmines who know who the enemy are? Oh, they don't know for sure, but they have a rough enough idea to follow their intuition. They're suspicious finds. As the show ended, what remained of the crowd was a static of adulation. Whatever perspective these people had when the show began, now that it was over, they were loyal subjects of the Queen of Kings. This may not have been a large kingdom, but it was hers. And for all it was worth, she was the king, and should be appreciated as such. This was one of my most truly proud moments, and one of my greatest wins. I made one of my stars happy, and got rid of a large contingency of my enemies, made a king's ransom, and I enjoyed a hell of a performance. Of course, I had one more prize to add to my bag before the night was out. That was fun, wasn't it, Cyril? We made a lot of money, crossed all those who opposed us, and saw some very pretty lights. It reminds me of a weekend with Michael Eisner. Cyril? Cyril! Cyril wasn't standing by me anymore. His merchandise cart left behind, untouched. Except the glass container that held the piece of wreckage from years before. It was quiet in the Queen of Kings dressing room. She had rocked performance worthy of the king himself, and celebrated the show in a way that could have rivaled his majesty as well. Now, she intended to get a well-earned rest. The bed in the dressing room was worthy of the task. But there was someone who was intent to interrupt that rest. The door to the dressing room had its lock mangled, and it slowly creaked open as a figure creeped into the darkness. It stalked towards the bed, raising a long piece of metal up. The figure pulled the blanket off the bed and thrust their weapon down, and... You killed my exercise ball. That wasn't a very nice thing to do. The lights turned on and I revealed myself to the would-be killer. He wore a smart blue suit with a red Windsor knot tie, and resting on his nose was a pair of large, black-frame, clear glasses. But behind those glasses was a familiar face. Hey there, Cyril. Old buddy. Sinclair? He backed away, dropping the long piece of shrapnel. How? Where? I booked Queenie a nice vacation after I was sure she wasn't the one killing my talent roster. I've got to make up with her. I did her wrong. They say the Euro Park sucks, but, you know, they have the best version of Space Mountain. At least until they ruin it in a decade. As for your more pressing questions, well, I'll be honest, Cyril, I have to applaud you on this. I'm actually quite impressed. You tried pretty hard to throw me off the scent. Cyril backed up to the door, but it was now closed. Set before him was a table that carried two glasses filled with ice cream and ginger ale. Enjoy that, Cyril. You're gonna need it. I took a big slice from my drink and watched as Cyril sank into his chair. You know, using your cowardice was a good strategy. You were scared of dying. But now I see you weren't irrationally afraid of a serial killer 
you were rationally afraid of me. You knew that as long as I was occupied with bishops, queen, and some really long nights, I wouldn't keep an eye on what one of the pawns was up to. When you really should have taken this whole thing less personally, you might have bought yourself a few more murders. Painting up, it should have been you. Set off that it was someone with some kind of personal grudge. And someone who doesn't like the king? That sounds personal. Tonight, though, was your worst performance. You thought that since I had my attention spread thin to all the possibilities, that I wasn't focused on one possibility. And yet that you'd be able to spend all your time not worrying about me on finding the perfect moment to kill Queenie. Your problem, Cyril, is that you were watching your victims when you really should have been watching the detectives. Cyril shook as he stared with glassy eyes and held his soda. Oh, sorry. That's a reference to the wrong Elvis. Oh, Cyril, let me tell you where you really messed up. I sent over the weapon that was on Father Lee to my buddy Vulcan, and, and he let me know what it was fashioned out of. A Beechcraft Bonanza plane from the 1950s. But you knew I'd find that out. That's why you put the one piece you planned on keeping in plain sight on sale, but at a price that it'd never sell for. You had more that were going to a greater purpose, to whatever bizarre cosplay ritual this is. If someone came to you with $15,000 for that, you'd shout at them for not knowing what it's really worth. Honestly, I wish you had come to me before you started all this, Cyril. I could have done something with this, and we could have done some good business together. I mean, there's something here. Maybe not movies, but books and TV are a good start. But you... Instead... Instead... It got into my work. Into my profits, man! Into my profits! And you know I can't let that slide. Damn it, Sinclair! He threw his cup to the ground. Don't you get it? I was trying to make the world better. If I could get rid of the image of that bumpkin oaf, people could discover different music. Deeper music. Imagine what the world would be like if the king had died instead. How much richer the world would be. I've seen that world, Cyril. I've seen quite a few of them, actually. Hate to spoil your dreams. They're not that different. The world is still full of sadness and suffering. And you're still the same sad, suffering man, no matter who dies before you. And as enlightening as this conversation has been, I'm actually here to teach you something. I'm here to teach you why it's very, very unwise to interfere with my money. I began to unzip my smile, my eyes fixed firmly on him. It's not really a lesson you'll be able to reflect on for very long, or very productively, but I tend to give it in a lot of my exit interviews. The passion that had risen in Cyril shortly before 
had drained completely, and he returned to his shaky, mousy demeanor, backing away from me and crouching as if he would sink through the floor. Please, Sinclair, don't. Don't. Don't be cruel. The time for song jokes has passed, Cyril. I'm afraid I'm terminating your employment. With my smile undone, I revealed my true form to Cyril, and he screamed. He screamed for a long time. He screamed as his mouth dried and chapped. He screamed as his throat grew coarse and his vocal cords scraped together. He screamed as all the oxygen left his lungs. Cyril Donahue screamed until he shattered. I was able to get a healthy sum of money by selling Cyril's stuff, but I've still got his soul around. I had thought about giving him away to one of the clients who had been inconvenienced by his activities, but sometimes it's just better to not tell things to the vampire IRA. He's not too good for much anymore, mind you, so it's not much of a loss to anyone. It's risky to harvest a soul by revealing your true form, even when your mortal is someone as impressive as Achilles or Teddy Roosevelt, and for someone as... let's be nice and say... Normal as Cyril, the process can almost break a soul entirely. He has nothing but a flat gray glow, and he doesn't speak much, if ever. He doesn't even float in his jar, he just rolls around at the bottom. But if you shake him like a snow globe, sometimes his. sometimes he'll whimper like he used to in the old days. It always reminds me of how much I couldn't stand the little weasel back then either. So, if you're interested in purchasing your very first soul, email the show, and who knows, with, with three easy payments of $30, Cyril could be your problem to love and cherish. Sinclair Wants to Help was written and performed by Sean Grevick. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and Reddit on the subreddit page r slash Sinclair Wants to Help. If you want to contact the show or ask any questions, email us at SinclairWantsToHelp at gmail.com, all lowercase. We'd love to do a mailbag episode.